Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Jill Brooking, which, who we're fortunate to have today. We both work for the Benefits Compliance Department at NFP, and we use this podcast as a way to bring to you relevant information for our clients who are uh, who run employee benefits plans. And today, we thought it would be important to discuss uh, what employers should be thinking about in terms of their plan since we're nearing the end of the year. And I wanted to bring our expert in, and I don't say that lightly, uh, Jill Brooking. So Jill, we as we near the end of 2018, what should employers be thinking about in terms of their benefits compliance? Thanks, Suzanne. I'm happy to be here. Well, first, I'd say larger employers should be getting ready for upcoming reporting. Applicable large employers with 50 or more full-time employees, including equivalents, I know we're probably sick of hearing that phrase, but nothing's changed. They should be preparing data to file their forms 1095C and 1094C for 2018. The IRS just recently announced an extension for those forms. They now must be distributed to employees by March 4th, 2019. It was originally January 31st, same time frame as the Form W-2s. Importantly, the due dates for the filing with the IRS haven't changed. They remain February 28th if filing by paper and April 1st if filing electronically. So if you're following along, that actually means that someone filing by paper, their forms are going to be due to the IRS on February 28th before they even give the forms to employees on March 4th. I mean, they could be early, but if they're going by the deadlines. Jill, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you turn course for just a second because we've gotten so many questions on this. Are we going to have the same obligation? Are employers going to have the same obligations next year, given that the penalty for the individual mandate is being eliminated? That's a good question. And it's important to remember that there are two purposes for the forms, the 1095C. The first purpose is to help the IRS administer the employer mandate. And nothing's changed with that. The penalties are still being enforced by the IRS. And so that's that part two where you're putting all of those codes. And so that's not changing. And then in the third part, and then on the 1095Bs that are sent out by carriers, those have been used to administer the individual mandate, and that penalty has gone away um, starting next year in 2019. So there's been some talk about what would happen to the forms. Well, we can't say. It could certainly change, but employers will definitely still have a reporting obligation because of the employer mandate. Also, it's important to remember that premium tax credit eligibility is based on whether or not an employee, one, elected the coverage regardless of its um, affordable or minimum value. If an employee elects that coverage and they're covered by that plan, they've kicked themselves out of premium tax credit eligibility. So the IRS needs to know that. And the 1095Cs and the 1095Bs are the only way for the IRS to know that on spouses and children. And so the reporting may change, but most likely it will um, still be in place. And then, of course, the other reason an individual would be eligible for a premium tax credit is were they offered minimum value affordable coverage, and that's that middle section employer mandate. All right, so now back to 2018. Thank you for that uh, for that information. Let's get back to 2018. Again. Yeah, and the other, um, so yeah, so on those 1095Cs, it's the same, nothing's changed as we just said, so you'll still need to report all the same things. Even the codes are the same for this year. 
and then forms W-2, those employers who have 250 or more forms W-2 that they filed in 2017, they will need to include the cost of coverage on the 2018 forms W-2. And this is reported in box 12 with code DD and includes the total cost of coverage elected by that specific employee. So it would reflect employee contributions, employer contributions for the months of the year that they had that coverage, the specific plan and tier coverage. And of course, those forms W-2 are due on January 31st, no extensions. Okay, so as we're thinking about these W-2s, um, it's probably a good time to remind employers of the imputed income rules. Can you speak to that? Yes. Um, so an employee who is covering a domestic partner under the group health plan, and that partner is not a tax dependent of the employee, the employee must receive imputed income added to their taxable wages to reflect the market value of the partner's coverage, which they cannot receive on a tax advantage basis. And I'll just add here that an employer should not be making the determination of whether a domestic partner is the employee's tax dependent. The employee should be certifying that they know whether or not they claim that domestic partner as a tax dependent. And then there is group term life insurance when we talk about imputed income. If the employer offers group term life insurance benefits in excess of $50,000 and the cost of that coverage is either paid for with pre-tax dollars by the employee or is paid for by the employer, then the cost of that excess coverage over $50,000 must be imputed to the employee as taxable wages and there is... Um, a table for that with the IRS. All right. Thank you. Well, I know we're in a busy time right now because we get so many questions from employers. Um, many employers have calf have a calendar year plans, so they're in the middle of their open enrollment period, or maybe it just closed. There are many notices that are required to be distributed annually and during open enrollment. So can you walk us through that a bit? Yes. Um, those include the employer CHIP notice, Children's Health Insurance Program notice, and it must have the state contact information at the bottom of that notice. A common mistake we see is that employers include only the language of that introductory paragraph on the model notice, and then they delete the state contact information at the bottom, and that's not sufficient. Then there's the annual Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act notice the summary of benefits and coverage. And then always you need to clearly communicate any plan design changes as this is required under ERISA as a summary of material modifications. So if you're changing carriers, deductibles, co-payments, et cetera, you need to clearly explain this so that participants understand the changes. And then of course later you would have to adopt those in your um, SPD. A self-insured plan must distribute a notice of privacy practices availability every three years. And that can be hard to keep up with. So most plans just include that notice annually. So you're be sure to be in compliance. So what along those lines, what we uh, often get asked is how those um, notices may be distributed. And I know that there are some parameters and some requirements related to distribution. Right. And um, the DOL has rules about how notices can be distributed. And they're pretty much the same 
for um, all of the notices. If the employees have electronic access as part of their essential job duties, then the employer may email that notice or notices to the employees. They may also post them to an intranet and send the employees an email telling them how they can access the notices and their right to a paper copy. We often get the question, well, is it okay if I just post the notices to an intranet? You can, but if that's all you're doing, that's not sufficient. You have to take the extra step and send the employees an email telling them where to access it, the URL, their right to a paper copy. The DOL has said it's, if you just post it to the internet, it's the equivalent of putting a stack of paper in the corner of a break room and not telling anyone where they are. So... Just that would not be sufficient. <laughs> and then if the employees do not have electronic access as part of their essential job duties, and we see this a lot in um, transportation type industries or retail or restaurant, the employee may not have to access a computer or any kind of electronic system during their job. The employer could hand deliver the notices, but if you do that, you want the employee to certify receipt by signature. And then the employer could also mail it, first class mail, um, and just keep a, a record of what you're doing, your procedures. Also, it's possible for an employer to request a personal email address of employees, but specific conditions apply to that, which we won't go into. And um, sometimes it's easy to forget, but those on FMLA and COBRA should also be receiving open enrollment materials. They have the same open enrollment rights to switch plans, add plans, add dependents, etc. Um, and so, of course, you may be using different distribution methods for them. That's a great reminder. Um, so as we're talking about open enrollment again, you know, one of the questions we get is whether an employer has to hold an open enrollment. And in fact, we had a question come through yesterday re regarding whether an HSA election could just continue on to the next year without requiring them to reelect um, as uh, to the amount of HSA contributions that they wanted to make. So just talk to us about that generally. So a what's known as a passive enrollment is permitted. And that means that sometimes people call it evergreen as well. So if if you only require employees to take action if they want to make a change and otherwise you roll over their elections, that's permissible. But not allowing any opportunity to make changes, sometimes that's called one bite of the apple. They were given an opportunity to make an election as a new hire and never again. That's not recommended. And that's for two reasons. First, if the employees pay for their benefits with pre-tax salary reductions, Section 125 requires that the employees be given a chance to change elections at least once per year. So you couldn't just give them one opportunity and never again. We also see this. Sometimes employers want to have a long plan year. It's an extended plan year for different reasons. 14 months, 16 months, you still have to give them an opportunity to change elections every 12 months. Also, those applicable large employers, again, um, that are subject to the employer mandate, you must offer employees an effective opportunity to enroll in coverage also at least once per year. So at least have some sort of open enrollment where people can make changes and you can roll over changes and they only have to take action if they want to change. So as long as they're given that opportunity, 
then it's considered an offer right. of coverage. Right. Um, so just sticking with the open enrollment conversation still, what about employers who receive employee election forms after uh, open enrollment has ended? Uh, do they have to accept those? And that happens every year, right? At least one, maybe 10 employees always do that. And they always have reasons. Maybe they were on vacation or maybe they were sick. And so it depends on timing. If the employee submits an election change after open enrollment ends, but before your plan year has started, then it's up to the employer as to whether they accept the election change. Of course, you would want to be consistent with that practice and not just accept some and not others. But if the employee submits the election change after the plan year has already started and the employees pay contributions through pre-tax salary reductions, Section 125 prohibits the employer from accepting the election change. So it's an easy out for employers. I can't do it. Um, I'm not allowed to uh, to do so could result in the disqualification of the entire plan because participants can only change elections after the plan year starts if they have a qualifying reason. Oh, I imagine that so many employers are faced with that. Um, so what other compliance considerations for an employer with, uh, you know, as it relates to open enrollment? Uh, one of the most common mistakes that we see is with COBRA and it's, it's, um, odd to think about COBRA during open enrollment, I know, but an employee or spouse that is initially enrolling in the plan for the first time must be provided with a COBRA initial notice, also called the general notice, within 90 days of participation. Most employers only think about this in terms of new hires. But think about an employee who previously waived coverage and is now enrolling during open enrollment. They'll need a COBRA initial notice. Also, if an employee added a spouse for the first time during open enrollment, then that spouse needs the COBRA initial notice. Uh, also, the employer needs to remember to file the Medicare Part D disclosure notice with CMS. This is due 60 days after the beginning of the plan year. So those with a calendar year plan will need to file this with CMS by March 1st, 2019. And then lastly, I want to just touch on wellness programs mm. a little bit. There are two different laws that may apply. And if the program involves a medical examination, like a biometric screening, or what the EEOC calls disability-related inquiry, which we would, um, would know as a health risk assessment, then they need to distribute the EEOC wellness notice. And as our listeners may know, because we've talked about it, some of the EEOC rules are in limbo for next year, but that does not include the notice. The notice will still be required that remains in place. So if the... Um, if you have that type of plan, uh, biometric screening, health risk assessment is involved, you still need to be sending out that EEOC notice to participants. And then there's HIPAA. If the employer has an outcomes-based wellness program, in other words, employees must achieve a certain health standard, such as be a non-tobacco user or have a certain cholesterol level to receive a reward, common rewards or reduced premiums. Um, then the HIPAA notice detailing the alternative standard must be distributed. Of course, 
if we're sending the participants a notice about the alternative standard, the employer must also comply with that alternative standard piece. That means an employee can receive the same full reward for completing an alternative to the original standard. For example, an employee who completes a tobacco cessation course and still uses tobacco would receive the exact same reward as a non-tobacco user. I, I know this one trips up a lot of employers yes. and it's been really the basis for some recent lawsuits and I know is, is in the DOL's view um, and how it is how these programs are administered. So make sure that you're working with um, a knowledgeable advisor when you're setting up your wellness program because it really is something that could end up um, costing quite a bit if you get it wrong because... Uh, yeah, there have been some um, brand name companies get in trouble, and um, this is a priority for the DOL. And a lot of times we'll, we see things, we haven't seen enforcement. No, there's definitely enforcement in this area. And um, not just don't send out the notice. Make sure that you're administering that alternative standard piece correctly. Oh, good information, Jill. That's a lot of things for the employer to <laughs> yes. think about during open enrollment, but... Uh, we certainly uh, appreciate all of that information. It is a lot, but it's important for an employer to stay on top of compliance year-round, of course, but year-end and open enrollment always bring additional considerations. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. And as we like to say on this podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Thank you.